It is a sudden event that is going to change everything. Um, and I need to change my operating mindset to one of survival, to one of uncertainty. And how can... This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series helps us to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. Greetings, everyone. I'm Renee Cordes with Maine Bids. Today, we'll hear from Scott Gillespie, founder and president of Saco Sport and Fitness, which he has owned since 1993. Scott is here to talk about two major upheavals he's faced over the years. The first was a fire that occurred a year after he bought the business that required rebuilding from scratch. More recently, when COVID struck, he had to rethink the entire business model, as did many others in that industry. Let's get right to it. Scott, thank you very much for being on our show. We are glad to have you with us. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Renee, for having me. I'm honored. So to get us started, tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and a very little bit about Saco Sport and Fitness. Oh gosh, thanks. My my name's Scott Gillespie. I am originally from Connecticut. Uh, I've lived in Maine now for 32 years. I own a business called Saco Sport and Fitness. We are a 25,000 square foot health club in Southern Maine. We serve at the time a little over 2,500 members. We specialize in outcomes-based programming. So instead of a, a typical gym you might think of where people pay a membership fee to rent access to equipment, we have significant programming to help people adopt healthy habits like exercise or healthy eating. We do that through group exercise programs, through small group training, through personal training. We also employ three dietitians. So quite a large operation, isn't it? One of the, the largest facilities of its kind in Maine? It is, yes. We've we've had a nice growth curve over the past 28 years. Barring the uh, pandemic year and uh, the financial crisis of 2008, we've seen nice steady growth each year since we uh, since we opened. So before we talk about your business, tell us a bit more about yourself. You said you were from Connecticut. So where did you grow up? What was your family life like? I grew up in a very traditional American family. I had a brother, a mother, father, were professors at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut, where I grew up. I was an athlete and a musician. I played soccer, was lucky enough to win some state championships and then be recruited to play Division I collegiate soccer at the University of Rhode Island, where I met my lovely wife, Beth, who also works with me here at the club. She is our sales and marketing manager. We have two children. Both are grown. Both are living in Washington, D.C. I am passionate about health. I am passionate about activities, mostly outdoor activities. I'm a skier and spent a couple of years in Colorado skiing on the World Pro Mogul Tour. I'm an avid golfer. I enjoy hiking. And for the past 30 years, I've also really enjoyed and find my best quiet times on the side of a cliff as a rock climber. Great. Well, you're in a great place to do all that in Maine, certainly. Yes. 
so fitness and, and sport have obviously uh, been a part of your your life going back many years. What, what attracted you to? The town I grew up in did not have football. We were on the University of Connecticut campus. At the time, we had one of the most progressive soccer coaches in the country, and he really developed a love of that sport in our community. And he went on to lead UConn to a national championship. And as I grew up watching the UConn players, and frankly, our high school trained with the University of Connecticut teams, and many of my graduated friends would play for UConn. It was the sport to play in our town. It was how we spent our summers and our falls. We just, we loved kicking the ball around. And it was very unique for the 70s for soccer to be so popular. But that was the sport in the town. So you mentioned the University of Rhode Island, where I believe you majored in health education. So what uh, drew you to that major? It was, uh, I didn't know why I was going to college other than I knew I wanted to play soccer. And uh, the goalkeeper for the Hungarian national team back in the early 50s happened to be the coach at the University of Rhode Island. And if I was ever going to learn anything about goalkeeping, it was going to be from him. So they did a marvelous job of recruiting me. The campus is very close to the beach, which made it very appealing. And so, and I needed to get out under the wing of my parents in Connecticut. So I went to school strictly to play soccer in hopes of being a professional soccer player. In my early in my junior year of college, I took a class called anatomy and I went through the process of learning how the body works and what muscle does what, where, why, and when. And I started to figure out all the ailments I had and how my body were. And I was fascinated by this concept um, of how your body can athletically do what it does. Um, which led to how can I make it better, which led to athletic training. And I had ambitions at one point to be a physical therapist. And what I found was I really didn't enjoy working with athletes. I enjoyed being the athlete, but I did embrace this concept of exercise and fitness. And it was in a very interesting time in our industry's development where there weren't many fitness centers out there. For those of you who were around in the early 80s, Nautilus Center was kind of the traditional, very small club with a circuit of strength training equipment, and it may or may not have had a bicycle or two. And I got a job at a local Nautilus Center as a fitness technician long before the word personal trainer ever existed. Interesting. What did you do as a fitness technician? I would teach people how to strength train on Nautilus equipment and teach them how to get on a life cycle and how to pedal appropriately with the right heart rates. And it was my (laughs) job to take people who'd never done this before and help them feel comfortable doing it. So you were a personal trainer before there was even a word for it. That's exactly what I was. And, you know, I, I went on to study exercise physiology. And I think had had there been a career path for personal trainers back then, that might have been the path I followed. But it really wasn't an option back then. At $4.75 an hour, that was not sustainable. Right. So, yeah. so what did you do after you graduated? So two things. I... I First of all, I, I had a passion for skiing. I went to Colorado for a week to visit and vacation with some friends and stayed for two years. I loved it so much. I ended up skiing professionally and really kind of ticked that to-do list off of my, uh, my bucket list. But when I came back, I still was passionate about this industry and found an organization called Health Tracks International. They, in the early 80s, figured out that many tennis clubs and racquetball clubs were struggling. Fitness was on the rise. And so they had created a model to convert racquetball and tennis clubs to multi-purpose health clubs by adding fitness and group exercise. They had a wonderful sales, management, marketing, and finance training program. And I entered that and worked with Health Tracks for about 12 years all over New England. And in the course of my time with them, I was in eight different clubs, became a turnaround uh, specialist for them. 
And coincidentally, they sent me up to Saco, Maine. This was one of their clubs back in the 80s to fix this club. It was a bit of a sinking ship. And I, I do say that if I could read a balance sheet then the way I can now, I never <laughs> would have come. It was bad, but it taught me financial crisis management. I learned phenomenal lessons. And most importantly, I learned to love this area and believe that this really was a viable entity. Quite simply, the business model that Health Tracks used that worked in some of the major metropolitan areas in Southern New England was not meant to work in Saco, Maine. And so I took the opportunity then after a couple of years of managing a financial crisis to buy this facility and one of the best decisions I ever made. And this was a, a, a former racquetball club. Yes, it right? was. Uh, in very well, poor financial shape. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, I took the plunge in 1993. And I recall wondering, you know, I I think the ultimate decision came down to if I don't do this, I will regret it for a long, long time. And so I had to know whether I had the knowledge or at least the ability to learn to become a successful owner. But I love the area. I love the people. And I had a vision for how I thought changes should and could happen in this entity to make it successful. I see. Now, to say you had a a bumpy start is is to put it mildly, because I know a year into your ownership, you had quite the literal baptism by fire when the facility was destroyed by fire. So very briefly, can you share what happened? Yeah, it was the middle of January, and we I, I was home on a Sunday evening, and the phone rang, and it was one of my staff people. And, uh, and he said, Scott, you have to get down here. The club's on fire. You know, and I'm in my early mid 30s. We are a family at this point. I have I have yet to become a very seasoned business owner. I am frankly a general manager who had assumed ownership and was swimming rapidly downstream. We had had a successful year, and I really believed that this gentleman was just bringing me down to the club to do a surprise, a, a party. Let's do something. Oh fun dear! So you didn't take it seriously. I didn't take it seriously. And then he said, "No, I'm serious, Scott. There's flames coming out the windows," and uh, my stomach just sank. And I I got this sickening feeling, at which point I started running out the door. But before I did, I had this moment of hesitation. And I I grabbed the phone and I dialed 911. And I said, has a fire been called in at Saco Sport and Fitness? And they said, yes, it has. We've dispatched the fire department, at which point my heart continued to sink. And I think that's the fastest I've ever driven um, up the highway. And I, I live one exit south of here. And when I could see the smoke and flames from the highway before I took the exit, I I knew it was real. I had been telling myself, well, we just put in a new HVAC system and maybe the dishwasher overflowed. And okay, we'll be closed for a couple of weeks, but we'll get it up and running. And when I got there and it was fully engulfed and it was gone, it was 12 degrees below zero that night. And I was hot because I'm watching the flames and watching my dream fade away. It was an unfortunate experience. It was believed by the police that one of my staff was responsible for the fire. So it was not accidental. It wasn't. And so we went through a year of hell because the majority of arson fires are an attempted insurance fraud. And so ultimately, I was the first suspect. And unbeknownst to me, phone was tapped, and I had to go through multiple depositions. And I learned that the insurance companies are built to delay or deny major claims like this. And their strategy was to delay it as long as possible so that I couldn't rebuild Because if I couldn't rebuild, then they would only have to pay depreciated value of the business versus replacement cost, which was well over a million dollars of difference for them. And so we created a team of an insurance adjuster, a lawyer who was well-versed in this area, who could understand the process that we were going to go through. 
And that process was really skewed in favor of insurance companies because of arson being insurance fraud. When I learned the rationale behind the delays, I offered to take a polygraph. And if I passed the polygraph, they would agree to pay the claim. And interestingly enough, they would not let me take the polygraph. And so because they didn't want to pay the claim was my attorney's preposition. And so we would have to go through this process of creating all these documents, then they can review them, then they can depose us, then we they get to um, review the deposition, they get to request more depose again. And this process can take years. We were actually expecting multiple years, but we were able to shorten it to nine months. And on that nine month mark, when they were supposed to legally give us, we accept liability to pay the claim or not, they didn't. And so our strategy at the time was to sue the insurance company for not just the loss of the business year that we lost or reopening, but the lifetime value of the business. And because we were profitable in year one, that was a significant number. So they said they agreed to pay the claim in one year, one month, and one day we were reopened and we were able to rebuild the facility. And I share that I had hair before the fire. Um, (laughs) And and that is the most stressful year of my life. And it taught me lots of lessons for the pandemic, but I would not wish that on my worst enemy. And you mentioned the police concluded or or thought that it was arson. How much of of a blow was that to find out that this was an employee who did that? And did that sort of shape the way that you ran the business from then on, the way you hired people, for example? That's a great question. And I'll share that that raises an emotional response for me because it was one of the hardest leadership lessons I ever learned. So your first question, yes, it blew me away because we were a family. We were, we were tight. We were friends. We would have dinners together, go out together, have parties together. It truly was a group of 30-somethings who were the best of friends. So that devastated me. The, the, the next question, which is how did it affect how I led and managed in the future? And in retrospect, it was very sad how it affected me because I, for the first time in my life, didn't believe that I could trust my own judgment about other people. Uh, And so it dramatically changed the way I led. I I historically had been a very cooperative, friendly, let's do this together manager. And I became somewhat dictatorial, standoffish. And I can remember saying words to employees like, I don't trust you. That's why I have these systems in place. And that lasted probably three or four years until one day, I just knew that wasn't me and I could Mm -hmm. no longer continue to be that person. And just because there are a a very few bad people in this world who, for whatever reason, choose to do what they do, the vast majority of people are truly good people. And I was frankly hurting my business, my culture, my relationships uh, more than I was helping it by being that kind of leader. And I chose to recommit to being a, a servant leader, to being someone who is here that works for my people and they work for our members as opposed to the alternative. And during that time that you were closed, uh, a year that you had said, did you ever think about calling it quits and not opening again, not rebuilding? Absolutely not. You know, to be fair, it never crossed my mind. With one exception, the fear that the insurance company would win, which All I chose to do was draw on my athletic experience of, so what, we're down two or three goals. We can get them back. So, you know, you have two choices in these scenarios. You roll over and die or you fight. So let's now move on from that difficult chapter. Tell us how you sort of built Saco Sport and Fitness over the years and take us through, say, early 2020. 
Oh gosh, early 2020. You you gave um, I, I assume you gave the the racket club um a complete makeover. Yeah. So first of all, when I bought the club, I had no net worth. I I did not have a million dollars in the bank. I think <laughs> I didn't even have a few thousand dollars in the bank. I was I was not I, I had not had a lot of great business experience in the health club industry. Didn't pay managers well back then. So I did have a partner. And the way the acquisition of the business went is the partner was willing to sign a personal guarantee that made the banks feel comfortable. I did end up buying that partner out uh, about a dozen years later. But the strategy over time was one of constant improvement. Two things led me to that. What I witnessed in the company I worked for previously, I love learning about things I don't know. So this commitment to learn and this commitment to grow and to become better kind of led us to initiatives every year. What are we going to do? And I have learned so much more about how to operate businesses, relationships, leadership, marketing, management, sales, than I ever would have learned in college. And, and I think when we combine that with this love of seeing people succeed and how can we help people succeed, I think, and then hiring people that also share that passion and that value. I think we're destined to grow and become better and better and better. I think two thoughts on leading up to 2020. About a decade ago, I was asked to serve on our industries trade associations, board of directors. And so I got to see some of our national data and it's pretty sad. Our industry as a whole really does not do a great job of helping non-exercisers adopt healthy habits like exercise. We are exceptional at helping fit people stay fit or motivated people get fitter, but we lose on average as an industry about a third of our membership. I recommitted this entity a dozen-ish years ago to finding ways to help people adopt healthy habits by studying behavior change, by working with psychologists, by seeing studies of what habit trigger loops work and what don't, and how can we create a better experience to help more members succeed. And so we committed to more a lot of beginner-based programming. We committed to group exercise. We committed to personal training. And most notably in the past five or six years, we committed to nutrition. We know that it requires both exercise and healthy eating. And so we've been able to be very successful over the past decade, guiding more and more new exercisers and, and folks who want to adopt healthy eating habits into these sustainable habits so they can enjoy a healthy lifestyle. And so that has been our mission and kind of our differentiation over the past decade. Now to answer your final question, up to 2020, things are going well, you know, we're growth on growth. We are expanding our training departments and classes and, and our dietitians. We're doing a better job of helping people uh, succeed in healthy habit adoption. So how did you weather the financial crisis of, of 2008, 2009, for example, and to what extent is the fitness industry dependent on economic cycles? Oh gosh. So how did we weather the financial crisis? We were a bit fortunate in Maine for two reasons. One, the effect of the financial crisis was delayed six months to a year before it really hit the main economy. So I got to learn lessons from many of my colleagues in areas like New York, Boston, Chicago, who really felt the, the, the hit hard and early. And it was a hot topic amongst my roundtable. And it really evolved you know, a couple things. When revenues are going to go down, and to answer your second question, yes, the fitness business 
is dependent on economic stability. This is this is disposable income for many people. It is not perceived by many as a requirement or a need. And so when economic shifts happen, our industry is one of those like travel and hospitality and food and beverage that are hit. And so the lessons we learned were how can you restructure your business model? What do you need to do differently? And so there are you know, many hierarchy changes to save on payroll. There are programming changes. You look at lost leaders that you thought were important that might really not be. You combine jobs. You look at expenses that were, were niceties but not requirements. And so I think that exercise combined with the crisis of the fire really were my proving grounds to prepare for the pandemic. So, and then 2019 was a record year for the fitness industry worldwide. So when you started 2020, what were your plans for the year? Ambition. We were going to, it was going to be another growth year. We want to make sure that we have adequate reserves and, and, and very manageable, if not lower debt. And, and we were going to do some expansions. And as you can imagine, those plans were changed pretty significantly. Right. So then... COVID hit March 2020. You had to shut your doors for an unknown time. Can you walk us back to that day when you had to close? I get a phone call from a good friend who happens to be the infectious disease doc at Southern Maine Health, Dr. Tom Courtney. And Dr. Courtney is my climbing partner, has been for over a decade. And uh, we've worked with Tom a number of times through H1N1 and the swine flu and some of the other viruses that kind of hit the world and we all get a little nervous and so I, I called on Tom's expertise and, and he said, well, at first we, he said, we don't know how bad it's going to be. It's going to be worse than what we've seen before. And here's what you can do X, Y, and Z. And we started to do that. And four days later, he called me and he said, you have to close today. And since I trust him with my life <laughs> at the end of a rope, I have no reason to doubt his motivation. And we chose to close at the end of that day. This was, the, I believe, the 16th or 17th of March. It was a, it was a couple days before the governor mandated it. And um, what was going through your mind before you, just before you made that decision to close? My, my instinct was, here we go again, meaning it's the fire again. All right. It is a sudden event that is going to change everything. Um, and I need to change my operating mindset to one of survival, to one of uncertainty. And how can we weather this storm and what are the options? And, and then you go to what do you have to do differently? Meaning if it is indefinite, first, it started off at two weeks. Very quickly, two weeks became a month or more. Very quickly, that became three months. And so within the course of a a week or two, I had made this the unfortunate and, and in hindsight, the right, but the hard decision. I had to lay off 55 people. The, the comfort was knowing that they would be able to collect unemployment. So financially, they would all be okay. But that's a hard pill to swallow. It became about how do we think about serving our members while we're closed was question number one. So is there a way to create a revenue stream without people in your four walls? So now we're talking and when about when did you start thinking about that? Because obviously, initially, it was just a matter of, of surviving the day when after we start we... thinking, oh, we have to do something different. Absolutely. Uh, so to me, that was the week we closed. I, I couldn't tell you if it was the next day or four days later, but it was within a week of us closing. It was very clear that we were going to be closed long enough that we needed to find ways to generate revenues 
to, to make sure that we had some kind of an income stream, which means I had to decide who are we going to keep on and why. I was so lucky to have four really great, hardworking, smart people who cared. We had been talking about streaming our group exercise classes live for years. Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if I could just take the class in my living room? We said, yeah, that'd be a wonderful idea, but it's too complicated. We can't figure it out. It's too much. We figured it out in four days. Ah. And so from the time we committed to doing it, within 10 days, we were streaming live classes to our members through a paywall that our group exercise participants could take a class in their basement, led by one of our instructors from their basement or garage or living room. And we were able to charge fees for it. We did choose instantly to not bill our members their membership dues while we were closed. We felt that was unright and unfair. We can't provide a service they shouldn't have to pay. And so we were able to generate on a fee basis some revenues through the group exercise programming. We also instantly pivoted our dietitians counseling services, both one-on-one and our classes to Zoom-oriented telemedicine, which is still billable through insurance. So for the three months that we were closed, we were able to generate a little bit of a revenue stream and keep some of our practitioners who earn monies based on those revenues still making an income. And And remind me, you said you were closed for how many months? We were closed for three months and two days. And when you were finally able to reopen, what was that first day? What was that first week like when you could welcome people back to the club? I oh, gosh, it was a very different you're, place. You're making me emotional again, because after three months of closure, being in a big, dark building, and we, we spent the latter part of it in the club changing everything to make it safe for people. But nonetheless, being a big, dark, empty building, to have those first happy members come back in, And to go through an exercise class or to see them work out and the smiles on their faces and to see people see people after three months of isolation, it was cathartic. It was, it just made everybody smile and happy. We'll now take a very short break to hear from one of our sponsors. And then we'll hear more from Scott about how the business adapted. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it. A story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. How will businesses have to interact with customers? How are we going to keep each other safe? How long will it last? Vaccination issues. And so we've learned this wonderful skill of adaptability um, and change agent management, as well as perseverance and resilience. Welcome back. We are talking to Scott Gillespie of Saco Sport and Fitness. Scott was just talking about the shock of COVID, having to quickly shift gears when his business reopened. Scott, what was your state of mind? What was your outlook at that time? Things were still very uncertain. There was always this level of uncertainty, what's next? That was also balanced with this belief that there is a future ahead for us that will be beneficial for not just my business and my staff, but for this community and members and helping people stay fit. I I believed it would not be, it would likely not be what it was. Whatever we evolve to, whether it's in six months or 12 months or two years from now, I believe it will be forever different. 
than it was pre-COVID. I don't know all the differences. I have uh, some thoughts about some of them, but the mindset that there is, there is and will always be a place for people to come together to improve themselves. If I'm in a building with a hundred other people who are exercising, they give me energy and it makes me feel better about who I am. And I'm with a group of people like me and I can socialize and interact and, and it, it is powerful. And of course, as people come back and as you welcome people back, you had to make many changes and cleaning protocols, air ventilation and so forth. Tell us about some of those. Yeah. So at first we thought it was a contact disease, right? And so we, we absolutely we bought one of those electrostatic foggers and would fog the place every day. We trained members to wipe down every piece of equipment. We got a, a stronger disinfectant before and after. We got special microfiber cloths to allow people to do that. We created a member code of conduct, which every member had to agree to to come back, which included many things, you know, length of time, distancing from people, cleaning equipment before and after. As I had more discussions with Dr. Courtney was on the quality of air. Um, and air exchange. And I learned that the average building in America, whether it's a health club, a restaurant, a shopping mall, or an office building, turns over inside air to outside air about once an hour. They may turn around the inside air more frequently, but in terms of exchange, it's about once an hour. And we had to make significant changes to our system. It just wasn't able to increase air exchange. And so we invested well over $100,000 to upgrade our system from turning over air once an hour to up to 20 times an hour. So when we have this system at full bore, we can turn over inside air to outside air every three minutes. I know beyond these changes, you also made heavy investments in um, adding an outdoor facility. So tell yeah. us about that. Yeah. So outdoor facilities, you know, across the country became very popular. If I'm outdoors, it was always safer by, you know, the medical community and policymakers said, do things outdoors. And early on, we did. We would take a, a spinning class or a, a personal training client or a, an exercise class outdoors around a deck by a swimming pool. And we decided to go all in on this concept and convert what was a 6,000 square foot space that had a small outdoor pool that had served us well over the years, but it was a bit tired and, and due for a, a major renovation. And we decided that that space could be better used for outdoor fitness. So I, I learned when we went through this process that in places like Iceland and Greenland and Norway, they exercise in places like this outdoors in the snow. I don't know if Mainers are going to adapt to that, but, <laughs> but it is certainly going to help us serve many more people over the course of eight or nine months than the pool did over the course of eight weeks. And, and Scott, I mean, you, you put a lot of money into this, yet, you know, fitness clubs did not get any special relief from the federal government. Were you using this all from your, your war chest that you built up over the years? How did you finance all of this? Great question. So you're right. Our industry did not receive specific relief. Like all industries, we were eligible for PPP money which likely will be forgiven, and EIDL loans, which are loans. Maine also had a couple grants that were very helpful. They did not scratch the surface or complete, you know, make up for all the losses we saw, to be sure. But yeah, over the years, I had developed adequate cash reserves that we were, we were well positioned for emergencies, for bad things to happen, or reinvestment. We also really were not believers in being highly leveraged, and so we had room to take on a little bit of additional debt. And Scott, you, you've mentioned the fire. How was sort of all this similar to or different from rebuilding after the fire? Yeah, the first three months were almost identical. You know, you're not in the club. Yeah, right. 
the club isn't there in your mind and it stopped one day. And yeah, there were a little bit of operations with the virtual stuff. But once you reopen, it gives you energy. You're seeing people, you're in your own environment. That was very different. During the fire, I needed for my own self-preservation to spend about an hour a day planning my new club, using the knowledge that I'd gained from the eight clubs I'd been in previously and my awareness of this area, what is going to be different when I rebuild? Because I'm not going to rebuild the exact same thing. And how is it going to look? And and that gave me energy. And that part is similar because now we went through that process of what's going to be different? What has to change? And and we learned a lot about our people, how resilient they are. And and when I say my people, my team, how resilient people are, how quickly human beings can adapt and how, how well they can embrace change if they choose to. And I think that is going to be one of our country's greatest challenges going forward is accepting the changes that are probably inevitable. How will businesses have to interact with customers? How are we going to keep each other safe? How long will it last? Vaccination issues. And so we've learned this wonderful skill of adaptability um, and change agent management, as well as perseverance and resilience. And right now, how is business going? How is membership? How are your staff members doing? It's it's getting better every day. We have had four profitable months in a row and each one getting a little bit better. And I, I feel very fortunate that we've been able to get there. Sadly, the average American during the pandemic gained 29 pounds. And this was as of June of this past summer. It's probably worse than that now. The national obesity rate crested 40%, which is also troubling from a healthcare perspective looking forward. And there are discussions about how to be healthy, how to move forward, what can we do? And it's not just physical health. Mental health is also a major concern. And we know that exercise and proper eating can be a great treatment and a great intervention to be a component of recovery from mental health illnesses. So I'm very optimistic about where we're going. I think this trend will continue very gradually. I do not think we're going to see the floodgates open up in January like a typical year might. But I do see this gradual growth as our membership builds and as people who want to reconnect with health and reconnect with activity and reconnect with people in this healthy environment, I think we will continue to see growth. Good to hear. Interesting times. So now we will take another short break and then we'll wrap up with some learnings and takeaways from this whole experience. Maine Biz is Maine's business news source in print, online, and in person. We inform, engage, and connect you to the business community throughout Maine. Subscribe to Maine Biz products today at mainebiz.biz. I think there's so many times when life gets too easy for extended periods of time that we just get a little complacent and we're not growing as we can and should. So I think that's lesson number one, that we have the ability to change if we choose to. We are back talking with Scott Gillespie of Saco Sport and Fitness. Scott, tell us about the the remote classes and options for members. That's something that you've carried forward and that you will continue doing, I assume? Absolutely. We, we are committed to it. In fact, we plan on expanding it. So the simple description is every class that we teach in the club, we also stream live via Zoom and all members have a login that they can get in and take them. And what we're finding is it's serving a, a, a need, A, that we didn't know existed, some that we did know existed, and some new ones that are really cool to uncover. So, you know, time is everybody's challenge these days and the time it takes to travel to a a club may not be in people's schedules, yet they can take a class at home. And we're finding that there's a large group of people who will take two or three classes in the club because they enjoy the live experience, 
but one or two classes a week, they're going to take it home because it's just more convenient. So they're balancing the two. There's absolutely a group of people who aren't comfortable coming back to the club yet, and we want to continue to serve them. And so they're keeping up their exercise programs by streaming at home. And this third group of people, which I think is pretty cool, is a lot of the snowbirds who are down in Florida who <laughs> love taking their class with their friends, with their instructor, and they keep their membership now all year long because they're taking two or three or four classes a week while they're in Arizona or Florida. And so, yes, we're committed to that. How many members now? 2,500 now. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, as you said, the pandemic is, is still very much with us. How closely are you monitoring the situation and what happens if there's another lockdown? I'm not smart enough to know this, but the people that are have shared with me, they really don't believe that's a road. Maine with our vaccination rates is going to need to go down. So I, I, I'm not putting a lot of weight in there, but if it happens, we'll deal with it. So we're monitoring it and we'll do whatever we can to keep our people safe. We're committed to that. And Scott, to the extent that you can sort of just take a step back and reflect on what you've learned from this whole experience, having to shift gears during this unprecedented times. You know, what are the, some of the lessons that will stay with you? I think the first one is how quickly people can change and adapt when properly motivated. <laughs> to me, I am stunned at how quickly our teams evolved and motivated and, and, and reacted to this and adapted to this and how they embraced change as opposed to fighting it. And I, I love that because I think there's so many times when life gets too easy for extended periods of time that we just get a little complacent and we're not growing as we can and should. So I think that's lesson number one, that we have the ability to change if we choose to. Lesson number two is really one of a reminder that preparation is the best action. And if I had not for the past 20 odd years, been developing, as you call it, a war chest and making sure that we were fiscally responsible and not living on the edge, that there's no way we would have been able to handle it the way we did. We would have had to become reactive and survival as opposed to proactive. And how can we use this to become better and grow? It also reinforces to me that the relationships that we create with our customers have to be based on trust. And that is how a business treats its customers over the long period of time to develop those partnerships almost, those relationships that are, that are meant to last, has a dramatic effect on how that partnership or relationship will survive a crisis. I probably knew instinctively going in, but boy, did they make those clear and make sure that I'm not going to forget them going forward. What, what was harder to overcome, the, that fire or this, or, or are they just so different? Probably the fire because we were closed for so long and I was fighting, I was fighting an entity that was people who was intending to not cooperate. And that was the most frustrating part. You know, when you're fighting an enemy that is nebulous, it's the coronavirus, yet everybody out in the world is wanting to cooperate and help people get through it together. That's an easier fight. I also had the lessons of living through the fire, but when you're fighting an entity that is intentionally trying to harm you for their benefit, that to me was emotionally more damaging. And you mentioned that you use the equipment yourself at the club. So how do you stay physically and mentally fit when you're not running the business? Oh gosh. So I, great question. I believe that if I'm not fit, I will not have the energy to serve the people I need to serve. So I think of it as the face mask that pops down when the plane goes down, right? You put your own on first. So you have the ability right. to help others. I think it's a myth 
that that I don't have time to exercise because exercise gives energy. It doesn't take it away. I do still climb. I still I ski. I hike. I play golf. But my exercise of choice is body weight exercises and some cardio, cycling, climbing stairs, being on elliptical. And I now do what anybody who's in fitness would think of as push pull workouts um, using predominantly body weight or bands or weights. Um, I don't lift a ton of weights um, anymore, but I do most of these in the club and I've been able to become very efficient with my strength training workouts. It's three half hour sessions a week and then cardio on, on the odd days. And I can be as fit as I used to be with a lot less time. So it can be done in short periods of time. Great motivation uh, for, for our listeners. And one final question to, to wrap up on looking back on your experience in the business what advice would you give to, you know, an aspiring entrepreneur starting out in this industry today? What would you tell them? Oh, I wish them well. I admire them. I would say this is as good a time as any to get into this industry if you can. I truly believe the need for the future is going to be great. And I would I would offer that this they would need to find the segment of our industry that they are passionate about. There are so many avenues to go down and you can't be all things to all people. It's really important to understand who you are, who you enjoy and are qualified to serve and find a way to gut dive deep into that niche. This has been a production of Main Biz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the MainBiz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.